Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. It just so happens that Pastor Chuck taught last Sunday. And he was in Romans chapter 5. And it wasn't one of those things where, you know, Chuck calls me and goes, teaching Romans chapter 5, and I want want you to do it too. It, it, It didn't work that way. We didn't call each other and say, hey, let's all teach the same thing. He taught three services last Sunday, did his radio program on Monday, and went to heaven on Thursday. Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14 in a message that I'm entitling, I Need to See Some ID. By that I mean identification. We're going to read verses 1 through 14, but we're going to pause when we get about to verses 11, and then next week I'm going to focus on verses 11 through 14 as we draw out some really important principles Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, for we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, That we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. In Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8, Paul will defend the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. And like any persuasive attorney, Paul continues to anticipate the objections. He writes as if he's hearing someone say, What about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? 
He can almost hear someone say, well, if grace abounds when we sin, Orange County, 1960, dude, let's party on. Why not continue to sin? Look, since grace is more sufficient to cover each and every sin, why not experience sin so that you can experience grace? He's going to answer that objection in verses 1 through 14. And then the second one, well, if we're no longer under the law, well, that means we're free to do whatever we want in verses 6, verses 15, all the way through chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And then finally, Paul You've made it seem like there's something wrong. That there's something almost sinful about the law. And he'll talk about that in chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. But the very fact that they have these objections makes me realize that the person asking the question doesn't understand the meaning of the law. Or the meaning of grace. Or the purpose of the law. And the purpose of grace. I think it's still a problem even today. Human beings have a tendency to drift in one of two directions. License, which means I can do whatever I want. Legalism, which means you have to do whatever I want you to do. They're both equally opposite ends of something that is not the road of grace. Paul will defend the biblical doctrine of justification and introduce the concept of sanctification. In chapter 6, his focus is going to be in this great big thought. The great big thought is our victory over sin. In chapter 7, Paul will discuss our liberty from sin. In chapter 8, he will cause us to climb this magnificent pinnacle of the mountain of our security in Christ in chapter 8. And so it's as if we're climbing up a steep hill. I know we live in one of the most beautiful states, if not the most beautiful state in the Union. Many of you like to go out, you like to hike, you like to go to the mountains, you see those 14ers, you climb that pinnacle, you come to the top. And Paul is going to invite us on a hike, on an expedition. We're going to walk in a particular direction. And we're going to see the signs along the trail so that we know that we're going in the right direction. We're going to see a sign. It's going to say victory. We're going to see another sign. It's going to say liberty. And when we get to the top of our journey, we're going to see a great big sign. And it's going to say security. Victory in Jesus, liberty in Jesus, security in Jesus. So how do we have the victory? Paul is going to begin in this particular passage where he not just suggests to us, but demands from us that we realize that we're dead to sin. Not only are we dead to sin, but we are also alive to Christ. Our old identity is gone. We have a new identity in Jesus Christ. A lot of things happen when people 
don't recognize people. Several weeks ago, Oprah Winfrey announced to the world that she was the victim of prejudice and racial profiling. She was in a Swiss boutique, and an Italian lady refused to show her a 35,000 Swiss francs. By the way, 35,000 Swiss francs, I think if I do, if I can remember the exchange rate properly, is between 38,000 and 40,000 American dollars. Oprah Winfrey goes in. She says, can I see that black crocodile handbag? And according to what she said, the lady said, you can't afford it. Now, if I were Oprah Winfrey, I would say, I made $77 million last year. My net worth is $1 billion dollars if I can't afford the bag then that means nobody can afford the bag was this a cruel case of racism was this a colossal case of mistaken identity or was it maybe a little bit of both You see, we grow up in a world where our identity is usually something that we can affirm by something that we take out of our purse or our our wallet. It's called a driver's license. In Africa, when you go from young adulthood to full adulthood, you kill a lion. In California, where I grew up, you get a driver's license. That means you go from bondage to freedom, from walking to... To mobility. Do you remember when you were studying to get your driver's license? And you thought, man, I can't wait to get my driver's license. When I get my driver's license, I will never walk again. (laughs) But you see, I was confused. I thought that my license also meant that I had to freedom to engage in other adult activities. You see, there were certain things that you can't do in California until you turn 18 or 21. In order to smoke, in order to drink alcohol, in order to sin in specific ways, ways that I know you would never do, I needed a fake ID. And you don't have to shout it out. But have you ever used a false identification to get something that you weren't really entitled to? Good, good, good. I see people going, no, I've never done that. But the truth is, the truth is, you're using a false identification when you try to get something apart from Christ that you're not entitled to, apart from Christ. So Paul is going to point out that we're card-carrying sinners. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, remember, he's anticipating the objection. Paul has told the Romans that we're justified in Christ apart from works, apart from the law. Paul has already said in Romans chapter 4, verse 6, Therefore it, that's 
grace through faith. It is a faith salvation that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law. In other words, the promise of salvation to those who aren't just simply Jews, but those who are also Gentiles, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of faith. So Paul makes plain the gospel of grace. We're saved by faith alone. We're saved by grace alone. Paul is going to introduce us to the fact that sin and grace have something in common. And you might think, well, what could they possibly have in common? Sin is invisible, but real. Grace is invisible, but real. Sin is powerful and consequential, but so is grace. If you don't think there is any such thing as sin, all you have to do is look in the mirror. Because if you look different than you did when you were 16 years old, and some of you aren't because you're under 16, but trust me, look at this face. It isn't like it was when it was 16 or 26 or 36 or 46 for that matter. We continue to grow and get old. The Bible says that the soul that sins it shall surely die. The evidence of being on this planet changes us. So there are those who want to dismiss Paul's claim on its face. You're not really saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, you have to believe in Jesus, and you have to go to church, and you have to do the rules, and you have to do the sacraments. You have to do the traditions. You have to keep the regulations. Salvation is a journey. It's a process. And if you stumble along the way, or if you don't make it along the way, well, hey, guess what? You've, you've fallen off the side of the mountain. But when Paul takes us on the journey of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, he's going to make sure that you're not going to fall off the mountain. Paul knew that there would be people who would be terrified by the gospel of grace. There would be people who would say, don't you realize if young people are taught that they're saved by grace alone, that you will be giving them a license to sin? There are people who perverted Paul's message and suggested Paul's view of grace constituted a license to sin. And if you're saved by grace alone, and if sin reveals the grace of God, well, why not sin to reveal the grace of God? Now, Paul has already refuted this nonsense in chapter 3, verse 8, where he wrote, And why not say, let us do evil, that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. He's saying that that isn't true at all. Shall we continue in sin, he writes. And he points out that for those who embrace the notion that they have every right to wake up one morning and go, you know, I know that God loves me and I know um, that he's going to forgive me anyway. And in the end, he's going to forgive me. So it doesn't really matter. You've fallen into this trap. That your sin doesn't really matter. That your actions don't matter. That the consequences of your life doesn't matter. That is just simply not true. Paul is going to point out that an excuse to sin is exactly that. It's an excuse. It's a rationalization. A plausible but untrue excuse of why we do what we do. 
You might say, we're sinners by nature, and you would be correct. You would say, we're sinners by choice, and you would be correct. We're card-carrying sinners. We're born to sin, and we identify as sinners. But Paul is going to suggest to you, guess what? Your life has changed. You have been given a whole new life and a whole new chance. There was a person in history named Rasputin. He was called the Mad Monk. He taught that salvation came through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. He taught, he argued that those who sin more need more forgiveness and therefore they experience greater joy. He actually taught that it was the duty of believers to sin. Let me tell you, he was wicked and he died a horrible death and he led people astray. But he's not alone as people come up with twisted excuses. It doesn't matter. I'll just confess. God will forgive me. People come up with all kinds of reasons to live a lifestyle of sinful rebellion. They become engaged in sexual immorality and they justify their behavior by suggesting, well, you know, God knows that we love each other. And so when they look at the sexual prohibition that's given in the Bible, flee sexual immorality. They somehow think that it doesn't apply to them. They'll see something and they'll go, God really wants me to have that. And the Bible says, don't steal. It says, stop stealing and start working. The Bible doesn't give us excuses to sin. People have a huge capacity to ignore God's word when it comes to their own pet perversion. And so in verse 2, Paul says, in the strongest possible terms... The strongest terms that the Greek language allows. He doesn't just simply say no. When when you read in verse 2, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any, any longer in it? He's addressing and answering the twisted logic. The New American Standard translates this. May it never be. The Living Bible says, of course not. The King James Version says... God forbid. The New English Bible says, no, no. Phillips writes, what a ghastly thought. I think it captures the sum and the substance of the phrase. How could you even think that? Where did you get that? Where did you come up with that? Paul has a short fuse for those who argue that grace is an invitation to sin or that grace is an invitation to license. Paul has argued, we are free from the penalty of sin. Paul is now going to argue, we are free from the power of sin. Later, he's going to argue we will one day be free from the presence of sin. There's going to come a day. There's going to come a day where your mother, your brother, your father, your sister, your next door neighbor, the government, nothing is going to bug you at all. It's all going to be gone. It's all going to be done away with. Why is it? 
that even after I've decided to follow Jesus and give my life to Jesus, why is it that I still decide to sin? Why is it that sin has such a grip on my life? And you might be thinking, okay, okay, I believe that I'm saved by grace through faith. I believe that I've been delivered from the penalty of sin. But it's hard for me to believe that I've been delivered from the power of sin. Because it seems so powerful. It's invisible grip grabs me. It jerks me around and makes me want to go places and do things and say things and embrace things that I know aren't right for me. So what do you do? Again, I can't help but think of my pastor who would talk about heaven and he would talk about earth and he would talk about the things that we do here and the people who we know here. Pastor Chuck used to say, to dwell above with saints we love, that will be grace and glory. To live below with saints we know, that's another story. In heaven, we all look forward to doing what's right. And on earth, we're left with the strange reality of living and doing things that we know aren't right. And so Paul is going to remind us that we're under new management. That you can take down the sign that used to say, sold to sin and Satan. And you can put on a new sign. Saved by grace through faith. Remember what Paul has argued. We used to be in Adam. Now we're in Christ. And he's already made the argument that when you were in Adam, you were completely in Adam. And now he's saying, when you are in Christ, you are completely in Christ. Frank Gabeline writes, quote, Our spiritual history began at the cross. We were there in the sense that in God's sight we were joined to him and who actually suffered on it. In t- the time element shouldn't disturb us because if we sinned in Adam, it's equally possible to have died to sin with Christ, unquote. In Jesus Christ, we're under new management. The fact that Jesus has set us free from sin doesn't mean that we're free to serve sin or to serve self. We've now become slaves, slaves to righteousness. And there's something that will cause certain people to balk. They go, I don't want to be a slave and I don't want to be anybody's slave. But guess what? Jesus has already said to us, everyone will serve a master. You can't serve two masters. You'll either love the one and despise the other, or you'll embrace one and you'll reject the other. Jesus argues you are the slave to whatever you serve. If you serve Satan, you're his slave. If you serve yourself, you're the the slave of self. You're serving someone. Bob Dylan got it right when he says, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It's going to happen. Chuck Swindoll said, the sin nature that once ruled over us 
no longer has the power or authority to keep making directives in our lives, unquote. If the truth is, if we continue to live our lives as if we're slaves to sin, we're denying that Jesus has broken the penalty of sin. We're denying that Jesus has broken the power of sin. And when we deny that he's broken the penalty of sin, and when we deny that he's broken the power of sin, we pervert grace. And we live as if sin is our master. And so Paul argues, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, Now, I want you to note just a couple of things. Verse 3, do you not know? Verse 6, for we know. Verse 9, for we know. Does this sound like Paul is suggesting, I want you to know something. Here, know isn't just affirm the fact. It's to know with all of your heart. It's to know with all of your mind. It's to know with all of your strength. It's to know with every fiber in your being. Like if you're married. Like if you're a child and you know that you know that you know your identity. Know that in Christ you are dead to sin. Know that in Christ you are alive. In chapter 6 we're told... No, verse 3. Reckon, verse 11. Yield, verses 12 and 13. You've been given a new identity. The way that I would think about it is the way I told my father. Dad, you're in the former center witness protection program. What do you mean? Hey, Dad, do you remember when Sammy the Bull Gravano... Yeah, I know Sammy the Bull Gravano. Yeah, Dad, do you remember, no disrespect, that he was a murderer and an assassin? Oh, yeah, he had had some issues. (laughs) He kills people. He's mobbed up. He decides that he's going to turn state's evidence against the mob in New York. He's going to reveal the whole mob chain. And so they put him in the witness protection program. Oh yeah, they put him in the witness protection program. By the way, do you know where he wound up? Phoenix, Arizona. They gave him a great big Cadillac. They gave him a new identity. They gave him a new job. And so you know what what he did with with a fresh start and a brand new identity? On his Cadillac, he had on his license plate, made man. He got a great big diamond ring on his pinky finger. He wore Italian silk suits and he sold ecstasy out of his trunk. When you've been given a whole new identity, does it make sense to live exactly the person who you are. You see, the government can give you a new identity and they can give you a new job, but they can't give you a new heart. When Jesus gives you a new identity, he gives you a new 
identity in the sense that now you're identified with Christ. He's given you a new life and a new hope and a new power. And he uses this incredible image. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ? What is is he talking about? I'm going to suggest to you that he might be talking about the moment that you're saved. When you receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you're baptized into Jesus in the sense that you become a part and the parcel of the body of Christ. You see, when you leave the kingdom of darkness, you go into the kingdom of light. When you leave the kingdom of death, you go into the kingdom of life. And so he's going to use three vivid images. And the first image is baptism. In the Greek language, it has two meanings. One is a literal meaning and the other is a figurative meaning. The literal meaning is to dip something or to immerse something. You would dip it or submerge it. You think of human beings being dipped into water and that would be true. But in the ancient world of the pagans, when they were making a spear or they were making a knife or they were making an arrow out of iron, they would quench it in their enemy's blood. They would forge it on the hammer and in the heat, and then they would forge it, and then they would dip it in their enemy's blood in order to change the composition of the metal. It might have a figurative meaning, because in the ancient world, particularly in the early church, if you, bab- if you were baptized, you are in effect leaving one way of living and you're entering into a new way of living. That's the way Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 10 too. When he says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud, that means the Shekinah glory, and the sea, that means the Red Sea, when it parted and they went through it. Paul is using it as an illustration that at that point, the nation identified with Moses as their leader. They crossed through the Red Sea. And so Paul means, I think, maybe both a literal meaning and a figurative meaning. We're literally baptized. And when we're literally baptized, we identify with Jesus in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. From God's perspective, time is irrelevant. And so God sees everything now. God sees the past and the present and the future and the eternal now. You are in Christ now, completely. You are adopted, accepted, identified with Jesus. Jesus was dead to sin, now alive to righteousness. And so Paul is making the point, the believer is dead to sin. That means your old identity apart from Christ is dead. And he uses this basic illustration. To be dead to sin is to be satisfied with your present condition. As alive to Christ. Let me illustrate. There was another movie with Steve Martin. And again, he did the same thing Sammy the Bull Gravano did. He played a mafia hitman in the movie. He goes into the witness protection program. He walks like a hitman. He talks like a hitman. He dresses like a hitman. And he completely fails in the witness protection program. Because he lived his old identity because he wasn't satisfied with his new identity. 
And the same is true of you and me. When you live your life like you're dissatisfied with Jesus, you're dissatisfied with forgiveness, you're dissatisfied with grace, you're dissatisfied with mercy, you're dissatisfied with love, you you can no longer put up with the fact that you're going to heaven instead of hell. It's just all too overwhelming for you and you decide to live your life like none of it's true. Like his life isn't true and his death isn't true and his resurrection isn't true and that everything he's done, it doesn't really matter. And so you decide to live your life because you're dissatisfied with the way that your life is. And that's part of the point. Baptism was a powerful way of leaving an old life and entering into a new life. Part of what I want you to do is to invite you and put yourself in the place of the person who's reading Paul's letter in Rome. You used to be a pagan. You used to be a Jew. You used to be a Gnostic. You used to embrace animism. You used to do all of these things. And Paul says, that's who you used to be. But you no longer have to be that. You know, when you tear something up completely from its roots and you put it in a new soil and in a new location, you expect it to grow. Jesus died and rose from the dead. And so Paul says, I expect you to walk in newness of life. As a matter of fact, A lot of Christians are what I would call in-betweeners. Do you know what an in-betweener is? An in-betweener is a person living between two worlds. The Jews lived between Egypt and the promised land in the wilderness. They left Egypt, but they didn't enter into the promised land. And they lived in the wilderness. Some Christians live like between Good Friday and the crucifixion and Resurrection Sunday. They live in that cold, dead Saturday of the circumstance. They believe in the cross, but they refuse to enter into the power and the glory of the resurrection. You're living in a world where Jesus is constantly dying for your sin. And somehow he rarely, if ever, gets resurrected. And that's why Paul says in verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. Point. A supernatural power brought Jesus back to life. A supernatural power has not only broken the penalty of your sin, but the power of sin in your life. That's the point. In verse 4, I want to draw your attention to that word newness. Newness is the Greek word kainates. It appears only here, only here, only here in the Greek New Testament. Vincent writes, this is a stronger expression than new life. 
It gives more prominence to the main idea of newness. We might think in terms of something that's brand, spanking, new. Have you ever had a new car? Not just new to you. Like, like you walk into the showroom. It's never been driven. No one's even sat in the seat. You smell the inside of the car. That's half the battle, isn't it? It doesn't smell like somebody else. It smells like it should belong to you. You see the gauges. You see that the radio has never been turned on or off. Everything is new. Everything is new. It is brand stinking, spanking, new. That's what he's talking about. Everything has become new. If any person is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away. Some Bible teachers have written expressions like, live in the new sphere of life. That's what Moffat said. Live and move in a new kind of existence, Phillips. Weymouth writes, live an entirely new life. And so it begs a question. Does your new life in Christ look pretty much like your old life? With the same fears, same drugs, same addictions, same painful preoccupations. Does your new life in Christ look pretty much like your old life? And if the answer is yes, then there's something wrong. There's something missing. In verse 5 it says, For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, that means we're identified in his death, certainly we also will be in the likeness of resurrection. Paul is taking his logic to a logical conclusion. Dead in Christ, alive, dead in Christ, now alive in Christ. How do we sum up the point? Paul isn't suggesting we trade or take advantage of the mercy of God. He's not saying that you abuse your father's heart. The person who becomes a Christian doesn't simply embrace a new philosophy, a new worldview. You don't just simply go to church. You don't just simply grab a Bible. You don't just simply read it. You don't just simply talk like a Christian and walk like a Christian and act like a Christian, but you live like an unbeliever on the outside. That wasn't supposed to be part of the deal. Those who believe and accept Jesus, they're involved in a radical change of mind and heart and speech. So Paul writes in verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. And by the way, in verse 6 where it says, our old man, it's not a 60s euphemism for the guy you're married to. It's your old man could also read old woman. It's actually the sum and the substance of everything that you were apart from Christ. Knowing this, that our old man, the sum and the substance of everything that you were apart from Christ was crucified with him. Everything that used to be you is no longer alive. When a person 
enters into the witness protection program, guess what? They have to cut off fundamentally all of their known associations. They have to enter into a brand new way of living. That means you have to pretend like the people you grew up with, you didn't grow up with them. You have to pretend like the life that you used to have, it's no longer there. The, The elementary school that you went to, the high school that you went to, the college that you went to, you have to immerse yourself in the new identity. And so it says, so that the body of sin might be done away with. What's the body of sin? It's not not just the physical flesh and blood that you carry around with you. The body of sin is the sum and the substance of everything that you carried around with you prior to coming to Christ. Literally, this is what the Greek text, I'll read it to you literally. In the, in the literal language, it says this, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be destroyed with the result that no longer should we be serving the sin. What does he mean? It, it, it isn't some personal addiction It's the sin that informed you and influenced you and that dictated to you how you were going to live. You are no longer informed and influenced by sin. You are informed and influenced by grace. And Paul is going to spend the rest of the book arguing for the superiority of grace. And that the Christian has no business serving sin. And that Paul's accusers have made a wicked suggestion that Christians are free to sin. The Bible says that the person who serves sin is a slave to sin. We've changed our relationship with sin in verse 6. If the old man has been rendered inoperative, then Jesus has pulled the plug on the old man. Paul isn't describing an experience. He's communicating a fact. The old man is dead. You don't, in other words, you don't have to pretend like he's dead or suggest that he's dead or, 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 or wishful thinking that he is in fact really, truly dead. This week I was reading the story of Mike the Headless Chicken. In April 1945, he was also known as Miracle Mike, a Wyandotte chicken that lived for 18 months after his head had been cut off. On September 10th, 1945, farmer Lloyd Olson of Fruita, Colorado, and his mother-in-law had the mother-in-law over for supper, and the wife insisted that he go outside and he bring back a chicken, and Olson chose a five-and-a-half-month-old cockerel named Mike. And the axe missed the jugular vein, leaving one ear and most of the brain stem intact. Despite Olson's botched handiwork, Mike was still able to balance on a church, walk, uh, perch, walk clumsily, not church, perch, 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 perch. (laughs) He even attempted to preen and crow, although he couldn't do either. When the bird didn't die, a surprise Mr. Olson decided to continue to care permanently for Mike feeding him a mixture of milk and water via an eyedropper. He was fed small grains of corn. It's recorded, it's not recorded, what was really eaten for supper that night. Mike began a career of touring sideshows in the company of such other creatures as a two-headed snake and a two-headed calf. 
He was photographed in dozens of magazines. He was featured in Time and Life magazine. He went on display and they would, people would pay to see this chicken. And at the height of his popularity, he earned $4,500 a month. That's $48,000 in 2013 dollars. He was valued at $10,000. People began cutting chickens' heads off all over America in the hopes of recreating Mike the Headless Chicken. No one was ever able to do it. As a matter of fact, in Fruta, to this very day, they have a Mike the Headless Chicken Day. The third weekend of May. In 1999, events included the 5K Run Like a Headless Chicken race. The, the, the headless chicken egg toss. Pin the head on the chicken. They have a chicken cluck off. Chicken bingo. And I won't even tell you how they get the numbers. But that's how Christians are. They're running around like chickens with their heads cut off. Pretending to be alive to sin. When I was very young, my father took me to a farm and they were preparing a chicken and they cut the chicken's head off and it began running around and my dad goes, look at that chicken, look at that chicken, that chicken's dead and he doesn't even know he's dead. And that's part of the point that Paul is making in the passage. That Christians are dead, even if they don't know it. Their old life has been completely severed. And that Jesus has taken a new picture. We've been freed from sin in verse 7. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we're going to also live with him. What do we believe? If we died with Christ, what do we believe? We've died with Christ. How do we believe it? We believe that we shall also live with him. How do we believe it? We believe it by faith. And what are the fruits of that belief? Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. And so Paul argues... You're in him. That Jesus has taken a new picture in verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul invites us to take a new picture. We had this old identity. He tears up the old identity. He gives us a new identity. And that's the question you should ask. How do I obtain? How do I get my new credentials? How do I get my new identity? Look carefully at the word in verse 11, reckon. The word is used 41 times in the Greek New Testament. 19 times in the book of Romans. In chapter 4, it was translated count, impute, reckon. It means to add up, account, calculate. He says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead. In what way? I use the illustration of a check. If I write you a check and I put my name to it and I say, take this, will you be able to cash it? The answer is yes. Hopefully, if you write me a check, I'll be able to cash it. But imagine you meet somebody. I know it's never, ever happened to anyone ever here. But has anyone ever given you a check and said, here's the check, but please don't cash it. Don't cash the check. And you go, why not? And they say, 
there's no money in the account. And you say, why in the world would you write me a check for something that's not there? Well, it'll get there. When will it get there? Not exactly sure. Take the check back. Why should I have a piece of paper that doesn't do anything? Paul is suggesting to you that not only have you been given a check, but Jesus has signed it in his own blood and given you permission to cash it because you've been freed from the penalty of sin and you've been freed from the power of sin. And guess what? We have to pause just very briefly for a principle alert. Reckoning isn't claiming a promise. It's acting on a fact. God doesn't command us to become dead to sin. Paul is saying, you are. Well, how come I don't feel it? For the same reason that a chicken still might be feeling something, but trust me, he's not really there. God commands us to act on the fact. He's going to ask us to present our new identification and our new life. He's going to suggest not just simply that we're saying no to sin and yes to righteousness, but he's going to give us a powerful, powerful way to live in the reality of what it means to be forgiven and to experience the power of grace. You've all experienced the power of sin. And now, Jesus is going to invite you to experience the power of grace in the very real world in which you live, but that's going to come next week. So... We've only made, we're only like halfway up the first trail, but I'll get you to the top. I'll get you to the, I'll get you to the top. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <laughs> Lord, thank you for grace, a grace that saves us, a grace that changes us. A grace that gives us the promise of a new heart and a new life and a new speech and a new way of actually living our lives. And Lord, for the person who's still not completely convinced that they're dead to sin. That they're in some freakish sideshow generating income from some incredibly freak of nature. Lord, I pray that we would understand something. For every single person who's alive in Christ, they're dead to sin. And for every single person who remains instructed by sin, informed by sin, manipulated by sin, ruled by sin, dominated by sin, that we have this wonderful opportunity to turn from it and to turn to you. And to appropriate the grace and the mercy that's found in the loving, loving, loving redemption that we have in Jesus. And no wonder my pastor would repeatedly say to us, grace changes everything. And grace changes everyone. And so again, Lord, we thank you for your grace. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.